0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us, whether in Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry or beyond, as we come to the conclusion of this amazing series as we've explored Jesus. We've been walking through these statements, these images, these visual aids given by Jesus or said by Jesus himself about himself And like I said weeks and weeks ago at the beginning of the summer, if you're a seeker, if you're a skeptic, if you're a cultural Christian, or if you're from another faith, you will know and see and understand the fullness of what Jesus claimed about himself, and you'll be able to say yes to him or no to him in the most informed way. For others of us who genuinely know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and follow Jesus, hopefully now, at the end of this series, we know him more, we believe in him more, we love him more, we can be more thankful and inspired and faith-filled and hopeful. Seven times Jesus, as we've discovered, said the phrase, I am, and then he added an image. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, as we arrive today, I am the vine. Now remember, Jesus made these claims about himself, but John makes the greatest claim right at the beginning where he wrote these words in his gospel in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. Fine. So we've spent a summer listening to the either truthful or bizarre claims of Jesus. But the question we still need to ask and wrestle through is well, how does Jesus' names, his claims, his work help us now? I mean, right now in my family, right now in my decision making, right now as I prepare to go to university, or right now as I'm a little bit older and going into retirement, right now with my kids. What's the last great statement of Jesus? I am the true vine that actually matters the most when you ask that question, and even more as we're wrestling down the grand cultural change we're all living in. A friend of mine who I've mentioned before, Kerry Newhoff, Thinking on Change, blogged a few months ago and gave a snippet of the massive change we're all going through in the area of technology. He, he paused and said at, one of the, at the beginning of one of his blogs, do you remember 20 years ago? Now some of you are like, no, I wasn't born, I know. But for us who were there and alive and can remember, he says, do you remember the 90s? He says, less than 0.5 of the world's population was on the internet. Wi-Fi and broadband did not exist. Some of you are starting to have a panic attack. You're like, there's no Wi-Fi? I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. Yes, there were dark times 20 years ago. We watched movies at home on things called VHS and DVDs and terribly there was no Netflix. You had to go to a store to rent them and we always took them back late, right everyone? 95% of music was sold on CDs. There was no such thing as Spotify or, or, or Apple music. If you wanted to go somewhere, it was a terrible age where you had to use a paper map. And you had to plot your own route. And if you were with friends or with a spouse, you would yell at each other and sin. Now we just yell at technology. Google's founders, he writes, were in college. There was no such thing as text messaging. Are you okay? There was no such thing as text messaging. And then he just says these simple words. Remember the world most of us were born into? It doesn't exist anymore. And let me add, and it's never coming back. Now, what have been some of the fruits of this massive revolution that we're all living through? Much of it good, and some of it's bad. We've been talking about this over the last year, even this summer. In the West, we're not just postmodern anymore. We're not just post-Christian. But now multiple people are saying we are now post-social because of this technology advance. One wrote, a philosophy of hyper-individualism has shaped the world now around us. Technology with the promise of connectivity has now disconnected us. Urbanization has drawn millions of people together into apartment blocks of nameless neighbors. Even the family unit has been reduced now in size, leaving us with fewer people to call family. An autonomous, self-seeking existence has been encouraged under the banner of individual freedom, and yet for many the result has been social isolation and dislocation. I made reference to this, so of others. In 2018, the former Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, launched a loneliness strategy in the UK because it was such a bad problem. For the first time in global history, she actually named a full-time minister to deal with the issue of loneliness. In a major academic study in the United States, it now we find out 50% of Americans do not have a meaningful daily face-to-face social interaction with another human being. Over 138 million people south of the border do not have a meaningful connection with a human being every single day. Loneliness we now know is killing more or as many people as smoking and obesity. We now know through um, microbiology that on a cellular level, loneliness is triggering chronic inflammation in people. The University of Chicago is actually trying to build what they're calling a loneliness pill. In Japan, there is now an epidemic of loneliness deaths. Loneliness, we are now told, is the number one fear of every single teenager within the Western culture. and 70% of Vancouver, eat alone every single night. So technology has given us much, but it's taken so much more away. And that is why, by the way, Jesus is so amazing and why this conversation matters so much right now. Why is Jesus amazing? Oh, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the change, in the massive things we're all experiencing, knowingly or not, Jesus does not change. In the uncertainty, he's certain. Anyone wanna say amen to that? But more than that, He is the grand answer to the growing angst we have never faced before, culturally and globally. Shepherd, door, bread, water, light, resurrection, all common, by the way, ancient Jewish symbols. But now near the end of Jesus' life, he chooses to use this last sacred image in Judaism, the vine in the vineyard, which actually will matter so much to us. Now, again, for most of us living in and around Toronto, or you are listening online, this phrase, vine or vineyard, means so little. But once we understand the history, things become clear, convicting, and also comforting. Here's the first thing we all need to understand. To the Jews, they were this thing. Uh, Psalm 88, you, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and took root and it filled the land. Isaiah 5, 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, the Jews. And the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. This symbol was so key to the identity and religious theological understanding of the Jewish people, it was at the center of the artistic decorations in and throughout this key area in the Jewish temple. One old dictionary records it this way. In the temple at Jerusalem, above and around one of the central gates, which by the way were 105 feet high, The gate that led from the porch to the holy place, there was a richly carved vine extending as a border. The branches and tendrils and leaves were made of the finest gold. The stalks which the bunches of beautiful grapes hung on were the length of human beings. And the bunches of grapes themselves were made of the most costly jewels like rubies and diamonds and emeralds. Herod was the first one to place that there and rich and patriotic Jews from time to time would add to its embellishments. So as you walk to encounter the living God of heaven and earth, as you walk from the porch to the holy place, what is the one of the main images you see? It is the vine and of the vineyard. So with the biblical and ethnic and theological and historical understanding where the Jews said God is the great planter and we are the vines, Jesus comes along and says the most crazy, blasphemous, offensive thing. John 15 1. I am the true vine. Excuse me? Oh, and my father, he's the gardener. Now, if you're not seeing it, let me bring it home again, because this ties all of the messages together. Jesus is claiming to be God. Remember once again, when Moses met God at the burning bush, Moses says, what is your name? And God responds out of the fire. I am that I am. Jesus, every single time he says, I am, and adds an image, he's claiming equality. He's actually claiming to be that being. And he wanted no one to misunderstand how exclusive, how, how blasphemous he was being, unless, of course, it's true. When he said in John 8, 58, very truly, I tell you, saying this to a group of pastors, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Jesus, in this last statement, goes one step farther. Not only is God my father personally, not only are he and I one, not only do I claim unashamedly that I am God, but now I have replaced Israel too. I am not just a vine or the vine, I am the true vine. Jesus Israel has been replaced by me. I am now the true vine and God the father has planted me. Israel is replaced by Jesus and Why? Because Jesus, by his birth, by his life, by his ministry, and what he is about to do on the cross is actually going to do something the Jewish people were called to do and had not done for themselves in the world. Faithfully obeying God without compromising. Jesus' allegiance was clear. His understanding of truth, well, it was perfect. His filling of the Holy Spirit, all-consuming, never abused. The Jewish community was commissioned. Why are the Jewish people the people of God? It says out of the Old Testament, they were called to be a light to the nations so the whole world could know there was one God and who he was and know his love. And they failed. Just like Adam failed and they failed, now Jesus comes and he moves from shadow to substance. But can you imagine the offense of this? Because remember, Jesus himself is Jewish, saying this to a Jewish community, and he says, I'm the true vine. One says this, the new concept is God's vineyard only holds now one vine. And now all Jews, all all of Israel must inquire if it's attached to Jesus. No longer is Israel automatically seen as vines growing in God's vineyard. Men and women are now now branches growing from only one stalk. So so here's the next offensive implication. To be in Jesus means you are part of God's people, but if you choose not to attach yourself to Jesus, whether you're Jew or Greek or no matter your background, then you're not a child of God. But then Jesus turns after he makes this wild statement. He turns and he begins to speak to those that have attached themselves to him. He says, well, after you've said yes to all the things I'm claiming, let me work that out for you. And then here is written one of the most confusing, most misused verses in the Bible. So this should be fun, everyone. Then Jesus says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So the gardener, God, cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. Now, hold on. So I've already said yes to Jesus and I've already believed everything. he's Now, is this saying that I can say yes and then say no? Can I, can I lose my salvation? No, 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 no. First, the clear translation of the Greek word take away or cut off actually in Greek is to lift up. It never is translated cut off anywhere else in the Bible or even in Greek literature. The lift up suggests the image of a vine dresser going and leaning over to a branch and lifting it up. Now, one author wrestling this down said, The second part of this answer came to me years ago when I was at a pastor's conference on the West Coast. A sun brown man came to me and asked, Do you understand John 15? Not completely, I answered. He says, well, I own a large vineyard in Northern California, and I think I figured this one out. He says, new branches, if you know vines, have a natural tendency to trail down and grow along the ground. And they don't bear fruit down there. Actually, when branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust, and then it rains, then they get muddy, and then they get mildew. The branch becomes sick and then becomes useless. So then the pastor says back, well, what do you do? I suppose you just cut them off and throw them away. And the man was like, oh my goodness, no. The branch is way too valuable for that. We actually go through the vineyard personally with buckets of water looking for those trailing branches. And we lift them up and we wash them off. And we wrap them around trellises and tie them up and pretty soon they are thriving. When the branches fall into the dirty rites, God doesn't throw them away or abandon them or burn them. He lifts them up and cleans them off and helps them flourish again. And the man writes, suddenly I had a burst of insight, lift up and clean. I'd never seen John 15 in the same way again. For Christians, those who've already said, yes, sin is like dirt covering grape leaves and air and light can't get in. And the branch languishes and there's no fruit developing. So read it contextually. Once you've said to Jesus, you are the true vine and God is the true gardener, then it says in verse 2, he lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. while every branch that does bear fruit already, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. So not only does he lift us up when we are languishing and broken and in sin, and after he does that, then he begins to prune us. And we all go, oh, that sounds like a great idea until you know what pruning is. Another wrote, grape growers practice several stages of pruning. There's something called pinching to remove the growing tips so you don't grow too quickly. Interesting. There's something called topping where two or, three, uh, uh, f- two or three bits of growth are removed so the entire shoot is not lost. There's thinning of grape clusters so actually you get better fruit. And then there's the cutting away of every single sucker so the whole plant gets proper nourishment. Now, to the untrained eye, it looks cruel and wasteful, but to the experienced eye, it's the only way to grow healthy and delicious fruit through vines. So if you have said yes to Jesus, the Jesus that is actually real, he will list us, but then he gives us a promise here. He promises us that he will prune us because he wants to produce in us fruit that is unnatural. And then we go, okay, so what does pruning look like? Well, the psalmist put it this way in Psalm 1967: Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so I might learn your decrees. Oh, what about Jesus' half-brother, James, who did not believe and then met his resurrected brother and became one of the great leaders in our movement? What did he say? Dear brothers and sisters, is your life full of difficulties? Oh, and temptations? Oh, then be happy, for when the way is rough and your patience then has time to grow, let it grow. Don't try to squirm out of your problems, for when your patience is finally full in bloom, then you'll be ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. There are all sorts of situations and adversities. The word trial here in James has a general meaning. It can mean outside and inside struggle. It can mean social, economic, physical, sin, the demonic, losing a job, war, sickness, aging, family breakdown, unmet expectations, persecution for faith, midlife crisis. You can fill in your own blank. I love, by the way, that the Bible, the Word of God, doesn't gloss over, does not invent, does not make Christians superhuman, is honest about pain and reality, and says this happens to those who love God the most. James says when you face difficulties, react with joy because this testing becomes a point of pruning or an instrument of refining. See, we as Christians cry out, I want to know you, God. I want to be a real follower. I want a deep faith. And God says, okay, testing will come. Some of it by my hand, some of it by the world, some of it having nothing to do with me, but I'll use it. And in that moment, your roots will grow deep. It's right here many, of course, leave church. It's in these moments many people blame God or blame others or themselves, and they miss the crisis moment was the place of deepening. God can even use our fallenness and the world's brokenness to produce good. So Jesus comes along and he says, well, I'm God, okay. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm not just the vine, but the true vine. Wow, that's offensive, but if it's true, Okay. Oh, then he comes along and says, "Oh, and I'm the better Israel, and I'm going to fulfill everything the Jewish community was supposed to do, and they didn't." Wow. And, and then Jesus says, "Oh, you've got to connect with me, and if you don't connect with me, you're not part of God's people." Wow. And and then if you are with Him, He lifts us up. Wow, that's good news. And then He says, "Oh, by the way, He's going to prune us because He's going to produce something in us that's beautiful." Now, all of this conversation presumes you're in the vine, part of the vine, and that's why verse three now makes sense when you understand the context. He says, "You're already clean." I've already picked you up and washed you off because the word I've spoken to you, you've already chosen to be with me. You've already embraced me, my teaching. You've given allegiance and lordship and you get clean through my word. So he says, remain in me. I'm gonna remain in you. Abide, walk. Notice scripturally, truth and knowledge are experiential and cognitive. Discipleship, one wrote, is not a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is. It's having Jesus spiritually connected in your inner life. Christian belief is a reliance upon and a relationship with a living person, Jesus, not just intellectually knowing about a guy named Jesus. This is this mystical, powerful union we have. If you're a Christian, Jesus is in us by his spirit. That is why the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ. Paul said, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Jesus. I've said this before, let me say it again. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the sap that runs between the vine and the branches. This is how Jesus comes into our heart. This is why, when Jesus said, I will be with you till the very end of the age, how does He do that since He's up in heaven? Because His Spirit is in us. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Without the Holy Spirit, you remain condemned. Without the Holy Spirit, not adopted, not guaranteed eternal life, you're not a child of God. You cannot call God Father, let alone Dad. Only through the Spirit is Jesus the vine revealed. And only through Jesus can we see the Father, the gardener, fully. No Spirit, no Jesus, no Jesus, no Father, no Father, no relationship, no relationship, no life. But when the Holy Spirit walks into your life, when you say yes to Jesus... We actually get the sap, the ethos, the energy, the power of the vine. And it says in the Bible that the Holy Spirit reveals and leads us into all truth and gives us the power to love each other and obey and forgive. He literally is the sap in our veins. So it makes sense when Jesus says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him or her, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Hooray for self-sufficiency. No, everything in our culture teaches us that we can do it if we put our mind to it. We have the power, we have the education, we have the, and he says, you can do nothing. See, it's, a re- it's about relationship. It's about power. We are literally Jesus' limbs. Paul says in a different way, he's the head and we are his body and we share his life. We see all three dimensions of faith right here. Without relationship, you can do nothing. Without knowledge, you'll go astray. Without power, there will be no life change. But notice something. Jesus, when he's speaking to those who've said yes to him, does not expect us to pull up our bootstraps and do the impossible. He knows that we can do nothing, and so that is why he provides us supernatural life. Verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. Oh my goodness, am I losing my salvation again? No. Listen to the whole metaphor. Think about everything that Jesus has said, everything we've talked about in this series. I love when one person brought it home this way. Don't misunderstand this metaphor or the other's. The principle is simple. Jesus the vine is the source of life. To fail to have him is to fail to have life. To refuse to remain in Jesus is to refuse the gift of life he offers. Elsewhere, Jesus calls himself living water and the bread of life. The image is the same. He provides an analogy to talk about his essential life-giving work. This is not a discussion about the history of individual branches. Who's the original audience hearing this? Orthodox Jews who thought they were in and thought because they were circumcised and had the Old Testament and weren't those pagan followers out there that they were already in. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You've got to understand something. I am the fulfillment of your faith. I am Christ, Messiah. If you don't attach to me, you will wither and burn. You are not automatically included. You have to come through me. So Jesus concludes this metaphor with a strong call to remain in him. How? Oh, by listening to his word. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask anything you wish. It will be given to you. Now let's talk about how this goes wrong in church today. Lots of people say, okay, well, if I follow Jesus, all I need to do is open the New Testament and read the red letter sections of the Bible and I'm fine. I only need to listen to Jesus's words. no. See, let me repeat what I've said three times this year. If you start hearing people in church say things like, well, Jesus didn't talk about that topic, so I'm going to decide what I think is right and wrong, or Paul got that wrong because I like Jesus more than Paul, or I read James and I don't really agree with him, but I like Jesus, so run. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is whom God the Father used to breathe out this book. So if James or Jude or Moses or Jeremiah or Solomon or John or Paul spoke or anything down, wrote anything down, it actually is Jesus talking because Jesus is God and this is his book breathed out by his spirit. There are 66 books and cultural diversity and men and women, all these backgrounds, but really there's one author. The Bible is the great work of the Holy Spirit, revealing the truth of God. It is inspired, it is true, it is sufficient. And if you need to know about God or salvation or right leaving or eternal life, it is clear, it is not fuzzy. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Open my eyes so I may see the wonderful things in your law. Some of you who have been in church even for a while, you follow Jesus, but you don't like the Bible. Here's the prayer you need to pray. Oh God, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in this book. The famous thing that Paul wrote later, Originally referring, of course, to the Old Testament, but now, of course, broader. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. God has breathed it out, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in right things, righteousness, so the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus says, once you're in the vine, remain in me by knowing my word. Then he says these words. This is to my Father's glory, that you will bear much fruit Showing, to be my, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I love you. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you're going to remain in my love. Just as I've obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. If you love me, you'll obey me. See, in our culture, love is about feelings and you can come in and out of it. But in the biblical worldview, love is about covenant. Love is about vows. Whether you feel it or not, you say yes, because your love is stronger than your feelings. I love what J.I. Packer wrote when he described the Bible and the interrelation with all of us. He says, you know, Christianity is the true worship and service of the triune God, humanity's creator and redeemer. It is a religion that rests on revelation. No one would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had God not acted first and made himself known. But God has acted. In the 66 books of the bible 39 before jesus and 27 after together are the record the interpretation the expression and the embodiment of the self self-disclosure god and godliness are the bible's uniting themes jesus says if you're my disciples obey me remain in my word do you see the pattern once you've been loved once you've been loved and as you continue to walk in love and as you know his word then and only then does Jesus start talking about loving other people verse 11 i've told you this so your joy so that you, that my joy may be in you and your joy could be complete oh my command is this by the way love each other as i have loved you greater love has no person than this that they lay their life down for their friends you're my friends if you do what i command I don't call you slaves or servants because a servant doesn't even know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I've learned from the Father I've now made known to you. You didn't choose me. Oh, no, 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 no. You you think, no, no. You didn't choose me. No, I chose you. And I've appointed you to go and bear fruit and the fruit, it's gonna last. Then the Father will give whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Do you catch it? Implied in all of this implicitly and then explicitly is this. Jesus as the vine is the antidote to the profound angst of loneliness we are facing. During massive upheaval, trying to keep up or being left out, and listen, Jesus is the one who resolves all of this. Listen to these profound words by Jesus. I loved you first. You, you weren't, no, no, I loved you first. You are my friend. I have chosen you. Oh, you, you couldn't even find me. No, I've appointed you. I'm going to give you joy. It's God started. You can never earn God's love. It's given. Jesus' greatest, greatest love for us, of course, is he lays down his life and died in our place and died for our sins and came for us when we could not get to him. And not just that. That he sent the sap, the Holy Spirit, into our broken, normal, everyday lives so we would never be alone again. If you've met Jesus, when the love of God comes into your heart, you cannot remove it. Your family can't remove it. Your sin can't remove it. Your struggles can't remove it. The devil cannot remove it. As Paul said, I'm I'm convinced death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any power, height, depth, or anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called friends of God. A lot of people liked and did not like that song from a few years ago, I am a friend of God. But you know it's profound when you think about when Jesus said it. One scholar said in the culture of that day, slaves were considered little more than objects. If you read Greek literature, Aristotle put slaves on the same level as inanimate objects. He said slaves are like a plow. They're just that. In Jesus' days, masters did not share with their slaves their inner thoughts. Just typically today, like employers don't share their deepest thoughts with their employees. But now we are friends after you've been loved by Jesus and continue to be loved by Jesus and your identity is placed in his love and when our wounds are being addressed by his love and when our sin is being covered by his love when our lives are secure in his love then Jesus says, oh since all of that now is already at play in your life, now I command you love each other. See, the lordship of Jesus is always about perpetual, holy love. And What does that look like? Well, many of us know it. All of us struggle with it. But let me just read it again. How do we love each other? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. It is not rude. Love is not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That is the unnatural fruit of the branches connected to an unnatural vine named Jesus. Now, some of you have never embraced Jesus. You've never clearly, fully given your life to Jesus ever, whether you grew up in church, not spiritual, other faith. Let me just say this to you right now. Jesus is holy love. I mean, H-O-L-Y, perfect love. Why would you not give up your sin or your dreams or your life to someone who is like this, the true vine? He's better than your religion. He's better than your rights. He's better than your views. He's better than your politics. He's better than your dreams. So if you talk to any of us who have experienced Jesus, here's the shocking thing about him. He actually is what he claims. Jesus is love. Let me say this again to every skeptic and seeker, whether you're here or listening online. Jesus is patient. He extends forgiveness time and time again, unlike anyone you've ever met. Jesus is kind. He never gives humans what they deserve. He already took what we deserved already on the cross and took the bullet for us. He paid off the mortgage we could never, ever, ever repay. Jesus doesn't envy what we have or who we are because he is better and he knows better. Jesus has no need to boast or to be proud because he's already demonstrated where meekness is real power. Jesus is not rude because he has nothing to prove. He's not motivated by competition or fear of anything or anything else. He is free, unlike any of us. Jesus is not self-seeking and Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. You're like, I'm not sure. No, no. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Everything that we have done that is sin, his grace has decided not to hold against us if we accept he's the vine and accept his work. Jesus is not easily angered. By the way, that's really true. He doesn't flip out at the right hand of the Father every time we mess mess up and drag ourselves in the church and wonder if he wants to talk to us. Jesus hates evil. Jesus loves good. Jesus actually protects, and Jesus is full of hope, and he's trustworthy, and he never gives up. Jesus is a better dream and a better desire and a more beautiful thing than anything you're pursuing. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Jesus is the only one who is not in a tomb. Every other great philosopher and religious leader is dead right now in a tomb or on their way there. Jesus came back and shows us what's on the other side. He is the resurrection in the life. He's the way, the truth in the life. He is the bread. He gives us what we want and satisfies our souls. And he gives us power to forgive and love, which is unnatural. So I give you this this question. What do you do with Jesus? If you want to meet him, all you must do is say out loud or in your heart, yes, I believe who you are. Come do all that stuff in me. I turn from myself and he'll meet you. Now, others of us, we are genuinely followers of him. And, and how does this help me as I get ready for the fall of 2019 Well, here's the first thing. We've been here before, but we always must come back to it. We as Christians, no matter our age or time of life, no matter what we're facing, good or bad, in these profound times of cultural change, must choose to build our identity and our worth in the words and the works of Jesus. Here's the truth. If you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, you actually are a friend of his. He is a friend. He did choose you. I know some of you struggle with the idea of him choosing you first, but let me tell you, when the devil comes at 3 a.m. and tells you that you're not worthy and you're not chosen and your salvation isn't that great and you're screwing up, that's when this matters, when you can say, well, I didn't choose him, he chose me, so go talk to my boss. Choosing allows you to rest and sleep at night because you know he's never letting you go. He lifts us up and he prunes us. Here's another thing we all need to recommit to, to love God's word and obey Jesus. We are a community that does not worship this book. We worship the author of this book but we live under this book's authority. This is so important that we catch this. This is God's word. And any church that begins to start saying, well, I'm not really sure, watch out. If you want to love Jesus, you must obey Jesus. There must be a beautiful understanding that this book is God's love letter and instruction guide to us. Now, as I was praying and preparing this week, I just wanna end with these last few things. Some of you who are genuine followers of Jesus are the verse two, vines. You're growing on the ground. You are covered in mildew and dust and mud. You've become lifeless and producing no fruit. And some of you, because of your background, think God's just gonna cut you off and that's, no. If you are the person who genuinely is a follower of Jesus and you have become lifeless or fruitless or covered in worldliness or sin or the muck of life, would you today, before you leave, say to God the Father, the vine, the the gardener, I need you to come and lift me up because he will do it if you ask. Some of you need to say, I just need you to wipe off the mud and bring me up. Many others of us need to say and wrestle with this. It's not just going to be a moment in this service. Am I willing and open to be pruned for better fruit? I read this this week and I want you to hear it. One author said, what else do we know or need to know about pruning? He writes, God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine." During those times, of severest cutting, when we think he has departed, that is when he is closest. Some of us are going through incredible moments and difficult moments in our life, and we have viewed it as the judgment of God or the absence of God, and we're like, where the heck are you? I would encourage some of us today to go back before God and say to him, is there a third option? If you tell me you're pruning me, though I am not enjoying it at all and it scares me, then I will know good fruit will come from this. So some of us need to reinterpret our life circumstances or the difficulties or the absence of the presence of God not as judgment unless you've produced it out of your own sin, not as judgment, but actually as pruning. And you need to pray an interesting new prayer. Lord, prune me so the best fruit comes out of me and your kingdom comes. And lastly, all of us need to pray about love. Because love is what's supposed to mark Christians. And we all fall down so short of this all the time. But remember, remember, The sap that runs through our veins is not from us. It's a source beyond us. This is why if you read John 14, John 15 even makes more sense. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And then he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you. He's the spirit of truth. It is impossible to keep no record of wrongs. It is impossible to be patient and kind. It is impossible not to envy and not to boast and not to be proud. It is impossible to always be full of hope and love and faithfulness unless there is gasoline in the tank that's not from you. And what does God say? He says that now you've embraced the vine. The sap that runs into the branches is the spirit of God and he gives us the ability more and more over time as we do not grieve him, but we're open to him to actually, to actually love. So could we just take a moment and at least pray over all of this because this is a conversation to begin, not to end. So Lord, for some of us at this moment, we've never said yes to you, not really. We just haven't. So here's the moment. Some of you have never embraced him, say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, I believe you are the I am. And I believe you died and you rose, and I believe you're the resurrection and the life, and you're the true vine, and you're everything I need, and I'm forgive me of my sin. I turn from trusting in myself or religion or whatever. Save me. I want to be a branch connected to the only vine that lasts. For others of us who know you, here's our, our, our prayer. Number one, Lord, thank you that you call us friends, that we are chosen, elected, called, loved. And Lord, I just pray that that would be resonating deep in a way I can't preach for so many people that their identity would be found there, and the accusations of the evil one and their own heart and family and culture would actually lose power because Jesus' name and word is stronger. Others of us, Lord, we're the vine that's covered in muck, so Father, lift them up and clean them off and bring new fruit and new life. For others who are wondering about pain and struggle in life, would you speak to them about pruning? And lastly, here's what we pray. Holy Spirit, would you be sent by the Father and the Son because you are the one who gives us power to do the impossible. And I pray for myself and this whole church that you'd keep marking us with the unusual, unnatural fruit of heaven-given love. As the Father has loved Jesus and Jesus has loved the Father, so let us love and continue to love each other. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.